0: I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, if you have them with you, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We are continuing this morning our series on the book of 1 Thessalonians and arriving now at the last chapter of this short epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote to this young church in Thessalonica uh, around 50 AD, about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's writing to this young church to encourage them. To establish their hearts in holiness, that they might be blameless on the day when Christ returns. Last week, uh, we looked at their uh, at Paul's encouragement to them in light of their concern about those in their community who had already died, uh, their anxiety over their friends that they didn't expect would pass away before Jesus returned, and they had. And so Paul writes to them and says, "Look, no need to worry." Their union with Christ is indissoluble. Even death itself cannot absolve or ruin or in any way pull apart that union that they enjoy with Jesus. And so one day, they, alongside of you, will be living with him forever when he returns. And now Paul turns still on the theme of Christ's coming to address another fear or concern that they presumably had in relation to the future and that we also have when we think about the future. Will we be ready for the day that the Lord returns? Will we be ready to face him? We say week after week at Church of the Cross, we affirm this as part of our creed. This is part of the the belief of the church that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And we proclaim that week after week. And the question is, will we be ready? It was likely the case that some in Thessalonica were concerned about whether or not they would be ready to face Jesus face to face. No doubt when Paul was with them, he had taught them at least something about the future This great and final day, um, great and awesome day, as it's referred to in Malachi, the day of the Lord, or as Joel says, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. This cataclysmic day when everyone would give an account to the God of heaven and earth who had made them, who was their judge. And so thinking about this day likely produced some kind of anxiety and fear, a real concern. Really, honestly, none of us like the thought of being judged. We don't. Think about how you feel before a performance review or a tenure review in your workplace. You've got anxiety about that. You don't like that. Or I've never been a contestant on one of these talent shows, but I can imagine the sense of anxiety and fear that comes over you when you finished your act. You've exposed yourself, and now you have to hear the words of the judges that are going to, to tell you whether you were good enough or not. We have this sense of, of a dislike and an anxiety around judgment, whether that's human or, uh, or, or divine. In this case, this is the granddaddy judgment day of them all, the one that's depicted uh, crassly, perhaps, in, in modern-day films. But they're anxious about this. They know their own sin and shortcomings. They know what they did last week, They know how much of a struggle it is not to assimilate to the Greco-Roman culture that was so dominant that they had literally lived their lives in until a few months earlier when Paul had come and revealed to them the truth about Jesus. And, And we know these things too about ourselves. And so I don't think it's in any way a stretch to suggest that a lot of us have anxiety about that great and final day. We feel a bit torn up about it. Concern. And when we get that kind of anxious sense of concern about that final day, it tends to zap our joy and can tend to render us downcast. So as a good pastor, Paul directs his next portion of the letter to this concern, teaching, encouraging, and exhorting them in such a way that he hopes that this little young church And their anxiety about the future day that Jesus is coming would be replaced by assurance, by a sense of focus on what they're called to do in the present, and by mutual encouragement. And that's my hope for us as we walk away from this text, that we too would be assured that we'd have a sense of focus about what our lives are to be, and that we would also be able to encourage one another in light of the truths that Paul reveals here in this text. So let's see how he does this this morning. The first thing he does is he undermines one faulty solution, solution to this anxiety, a solution that apparently tempted the Thessalonians and that has certainly tempted the church throughout its history. And that would be if we just knew when the day would come, then we could be assured that we would be ready. It's like if I knew, which I do, when you're coming over to my house, then I can be sure that my house is going to be clean and in order and I can take away. But if, but if you tell me you're coming sometime in the next five hours, then I'll be anxious because I don't know when, and so I'll, I'll kind of scamper around. And Paul reminds him that that's a fruitless solution to this, uh, this problem. This is kind of fruitless speculation. He says in, in verse, um, verse 1, we have no, You have no need to, to have anything written to you about times and seasons. Instead, verse 2, You're fully aware that this day will come like a thief in the night. Paul reminds them, you can't know the day. This this, uh, simile, like a thief in the night, is one that's shared by Jesus in his own ministry, as we read in Matthew uh, 24 today. It's also shared by Peter in uh, his second epistle, where he reminds them in chapter 3 that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. So this is common, common understanding in early Christian tradition, that this is a part of it, that we don't know the day. And so Paul says there's no point in speculating. And further, he describes the day in verse 3, almost as if to heighten the tension around this day. He says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. That quote, peace and security, is a common boast of the Roman Empire. That through their military might, through their genius, through their organization and their political structures, they would promise peace and security to those around them. there's no doubt when Paul writes this to a young church in a Greco-Roman city that they know who he's pointing out, who he's pointing his finger at somewhat indirectly. And he says in the midst of this boast of stability, this day will come in a sense, like a grizzly bear entering into a campground. There will be no more easy picnics, but this will kind of throw things up in the air. Don't run with that picture too far. Um, but it'll be a day of significant disruption and change. And then there's another simile that he gives in that verse. He says that sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So let's think just for a moment about these two similes briefly. So first, the thief in the night. This is Someone who's coming that's sudden and unexpected and for which there will be no warning. That's the heart behind this simile. So this day will come without warning upon the entire world. And right in the midst of the world's own boasting about its peace and security, about its prosperity, about its having handled the problems that it faces in human life, that will all come to a screeching halt. And the world will be transformed. By this king who's returning to claim it for his own. So sudden and unexpected for which there will be no warning. That's what the thief in the night metaphor or simile communicates for us. Labor pains, labor pains, sudden and unavoidable from which there will be no escape. I remember that when Mandy and I were younger and She had just found out that she was pregnant with Chloe. um, We had just found out. She was, of course, very excited. And then one of the first things that she looked at me and said was like, this means she has to come out. (laughs) Or it has to come out. We didn't know it was she at that point. And there's that sense of inevitability. And that's what this simile communicates, is that when you're pregnant, you know. It's not unexpected. You know that these labor pains are coming. And that you cannot escape them. And that they will be sudden. And so this is what Paul communicates about this great and final day. So don't speculate about it. So then what is, secondly, the solution that he offers them if it's not to kind of know when the day is coming? Because you can't know, because it will be sudden, unexpected, sudden, and unavoidable. Then he tells them the real solution in the next section, verses four through nine. Because it seems like up to this point, Paul's just exacerbating their problem. There is this great day coming. It's going to be cataclysmic. It's going to bring with it real change and judgment. So why don't they need to be afraid and anxious? To understand what Paul says next, we we need to do a quick review on the Christian teaching about the two ages, this age and the age to come, because that's what he speaks into in this next section. So there's this present age that's marked by um, a world that's enslaved to sin, and because of that is in rebellion to God. And this present age is commonly referred to as the age of darkness in the biblical text. Think about that song in uh, Zechariah's song in Luke 1, those uh, upon those sitting in darkness, the light has dawned. There's a sense in which this present age underneath the power of sin is in darkness versus the new age, the age to come, the age of God's rule and kingdom where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. This new age, the age of God, is the age of life, and it's referred to frequently throughout the scriptures as the age of light. This is the new creation of God, proclaimed in Jesus and inaugurated in his death at the cross and resurrection. And so what the Christian teaching is about these two ages is that in pres- presently, these two ages are overlapping the new age was inaugurated in the resurrection of Jesus. He's the firstborn. The new creation has begun officially and genuinely in the resurrection of Christ. That new creation life has been shared now with those who have trusted in him by faith and now have the spirit in them. And yet the continuing age of darkness or the age of darkness continues. And so now you have this new age overlapping the present age. And we're living in that moment when the light of the new age, think about that first moment. If you're ever up early enough, right now it would be very, very early, uh, before the the light of dawn, even before the sunrise, begins to burst over the eastern horizon. Paul's saying, you're already a part of that new day, and yet there's still darkness mostly covering the land. And there are these two ages. And so Paul's great encouragement to them in verse 4 is, look, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Verse 5, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Think about the gospel, the great news that we proclaim at the heart of the church, and think about how it speaks directly to this reality in, say, Colossians 1. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Or 1 Peter 2, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or the gospel of John in chapter one, in him, that is in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so Paul's great encouragement to them in the midst of this final day that's coming is, look, you are already part of the day. You're already living in the light. The great news of the gospel is that you have been transferred, literally, from one kingdom to another, from darkness to light, and you are now defined as a child of the light, a child of the day. So when the day comes, when the sun fully rises and all is made new, you're already living in what that day will bring. You're already standing as a citizen of that kingdom of light, already belonging to that future, So when that future comes, for you, oh young Christians in Thessalonica, for you Christians in 21st century Boston, this day does not need to bring about a sense of fear and anxiety about facing your king. This will be a day of rescue and deliverance and renewal that you can celebrate and anticipate as a wonderful day. And so he says in verse 4, it won't surprise you like a thief Yes, it will be sudden for all of us who are part of this kingdom of light. The day will come. Nobody knows when it's coming. And in that sense, it will kind of surprise us. It'll be sudden like a thief arriving. But what else makes the thief's arrival sudden is the fact that we're asleep. And when the thief breaks into the house, we're groggy and and not awake. And that nighttime arrival leaves, leaves us exposed and open and vulnerable. But Paul says you are already awake. And he encourages us to stay awake in verse 6. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. This element of unreadiness, of sleepfulness, is removed in the Christian's experience. He or she is awake already, part of the pre-dawn hours of the day. I really despise blackout shades, so I've only experienced them in hotels. Some of you may have them at home, and if you like them, that's great. But the reality is, the only time I have that experience, or one of the few times I have that experience, is when we're staying in a hotel as a family, and of course your children wake up early, so you got in from a late flight, you know, early hours in the morning, and you're sleeping well into the morning, and suddenly one of your children just kind of opens the shades, and there's that discomfort of the light just kind of bothering you. And that's the idea that Paul says here is going to happen to those who are asleep. It's like the blackout shades are open, and there's this wow, ah, there's this adjustment. But you're not in that situation. You're like maybe you're not like this in life, but you're like that really organized person who's always on top of their life, who always goes to bed at nine o'clock at night and wakes up at four thirty in the morning to have their devotions. That's what you're like. And the day that's coming is not going to surprise you in any way because you're already awake. You're ready for that day. It's interesting, Paul follows this assurance that you belong to the day with exhortations, both in, he does it in two places here. In verses 4 and 5, he says, this is who you are, your children of the day. So, verse 6, don't be asleep as others are, but stay awake, because those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. That's another thing he says, even if they're awake late into the night, they're awake partying and drunken. and and therefore they're not ready for the day. He says, so you you don't want to be in that situation, so you stay awake. So he follows it with this exhortation. Here's who you are. Now live this way. And then in verse 8, he says the same thing. Since we belong to the day, there's the reminder, this is who you are. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Let us go out and continue to live this way, fighting the good fight in the midst of a dark world. Let's put on the armor of light. And live as people of the light. And so even in the midst of their, think about this, their anxiety about this coming day, their anxiety about facing judgment, Paul wants to say, look, you don't have to be anxious. You don't have to be afraid. You're already part of the day that's coming. You've already woken up. And then he says, he can't help himself. He says, and I want you to live more and more as people of the day. This is Christian ethics in a nutshell. It is, you are already part of the light. Now, live as those children of the light that you already are. Put on the armor. Go out into the dark world and shine, as Paul says in Philippians 2, shine as lights, as stars in the darkness by your faith and hope and love. I think it's interesting. He picks up this triad of Christian virtues that he started with in chapter 1 is faith and hope and love. So this encouragement, don't be afraid, don't be anxious, is always accompanied by this exhortation. Continue to live in this way. Now, it may be that for a lot of them, and maybe even for us, we hear these things and we think, okay, that's great, but we still feel this kind of underlying sense of, I don't know that I'm really a child of the day. I'm not sure what I think, you know, if I can really embrace the assurance of this message. And that's where verses 9 and 10 come in very helpful to us. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live together with him. We know how fickle we are. We know how up we are one day and down we are the next And if we think being a child of the day belongs or depends upon us and our strength of resolve and will, then our anxiety about that future day will not be released at all. It won't be addressed at all. And what Paul is saying is that the heart behind, that the reality behind who you are and who you're called to be as children of the day and of the light is the reality of God himself and his will and his actions. And there is no deeper, more secure, more lasting, more foundational reality in all of the world than this, the God who is at the center of all being. And this God, Paul says, has not destined us or uh, appointed us for wrath. That is the just retribution of our rebellion against him. And I should just say that God's wrath is the flip side of God's love. This is God's commitment to renew his world. And wrath is that other side of love that is set against all that which opposes God's good purposes for his creation, all that which destroys humanity. God will one day destroy. And that's a good attribute of this God. But Paul says, You're not destined for that. But for what? To obtain salvation. Through whom? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's your destiny. That's your future. That's why when you face this final day, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to wonder whether you measure up. Why? Because God has obtained salvation for you through Jesus Christ. And then he says, and I think it's no surprise that he brings the cross into this moment, verse 10 The one through whom you're obtaining salvation is the one who died for us. What does that mean? Well, it means a tremendous amount. But what produces anxiety in us as we face judgment? It's the reality of our sin. It's the reality that every one of us knows, whether we believe in God or not, we know that in some real deep way, we are broken and we have missed the mark. And the cross is that great and final and deep An everlasting word that Paul sort of pulls out of his toolkit right here and lays out before the anxious Thessalonians and says, Don't forget, Jesus died for you. And because he died for you, your own sin of yesterday, of last year, of today, and of tomorrow has been sufficiently dealt with, paid for, and healed at the cross. That blood that Jesus shed at the cross is that blood which cleanses you from the filth of your own sin, so much so that you can face this great and final day, not with anxiety, but with a tremendous sense of assurance that you belong to the day, not because you've been so amazing at not falling asleep, but because God has done it. Because God is your God. And because God, through the person of his son, has taken the problem of your sin upon himself. Why? I love how this finishes as we come to a finish, as it did last week. Do you remember last week? If you've got your Bible open, go back to chapter 4. Remember the future that Paul portrays for them, that we will always be with the Lord, the dead and the living, united together in the resurrection with the Lord. What's the finish here in verse 10? That he died for us so that whether we are awake, whether we're alive when this day comes, or whether we're asleep, and here he's using a different, he gets confusing at times, he's using a different uh, metaphor for sleep. This is if we've died, if whether we're dead when he comes, we might live, and I don't know why the ESV leaves out the word, it's very clear in the Greek, together with him. That's our future. It's, it's beautiful as Paul looks to the Christian hope. He says the Christian hope is ultimately consumed with the thought that we will be together with the King of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we will enjoy forever fellowship with Him in His presence, which is the great longing of every human heart and the only thing that ultimately satisfies. And this will be our future. To be with Him. So, as you're thinking, Thessalonians, as you're thinking, Church of the Cross, as you're living in the midst of a dark world, remember who you are. Live into who you are. And know that what assures you of this great hope and takes away your anxiety is that this God has called you into this. And it's by his word, not your strength. And this God has sent his own son to deal with that which makes you anxious once and for all at the cross. So, the final words, like last time, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid about those who have died. Don't be anxious about the final day when you face your king. Instead, in light of these beautiful truths, that this will be your day of deliverance and salvation, encourage one another. Don't just let me, the apostle, encourage you, but encourage one another. He gives a great vision of Christian community, of brothers and sisters in the faith, encouraging one another and building one another up. And he says, just as you are doing, let this hope, let this assurance of who you are be, the part, be, be a part and animate your conversations together throughout the week this week, in your neighborhood groups, in your triads. Let this inform you that you might encourage each other to put on faith, hope, and love and live as children of the light, longing for the day when you will be reunioned with your king who will make everything new. That's our great hope. May we live into it. Amen.